chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with his own husband, with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife does not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must refrain, remain unmarried, let else be reconciled to her husband. And her husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and who is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, his children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, so let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. My name's Rowan Kemp. The EU has kindly invited me to speak for three weeks on the topic of the ethics of dating a rather interesting sort of topic. The challenge of finding a life partner these days is very tricky. We live in a Tinder swipe left, swipe right sort of culture, which seems to encourage superficiality. Casual hookups for sex are nothing remarkable. We've all heard the online dating horror stories. Maybe you've even been through a few horror stories yourself. Navigating the whole dating scene can be quite fraught, fraught with anxiety and fraught with risk. The whole dating game that our culture is playing is not always that much fun to play. Maybe you don't like the rules. Maybe you're not even sure of the goal of the game. But short of taking a vow of celibacy or maybe asking your parents to arrange a marriage for you or maybe going on the bachelorette, is there really any other way of playing the game than what our culture stipulates as dating? Now, the difficulty is doubled for those who call themselves Christians, those who are committed to following the Lord Jesus. How do you hold on to Jesus' teaching about sex, namely that sex is exclusively for marriage, when our culture says 
Sex is just a necessary stepping stone before making a commitment to somebody. Bible is very clear the place of sex is exclusively for marriage, but how as a Christian do you work that out when contemporary dating culture says sex is an integral part of dating? And what about the fact that the Bible doesn't talk about dating at all? How do you work out as a Christian how to date wisely and well when the Bible doesn't even mention it? Navigating our contemporary dating culture is doubly difficult for Christians who want to take Jesus and the Bible seriously. So the aim of this three-week series is to present to you a Christian ethical framework for thinking through the challenges of dating. Now, if you're a Christian and you're currently dating someone or thinking that you might date someone in the future, then this topic has an obvious direct relevance for you. I'm hoping that you'll find it interesting. You'll probably find some parts of what I say surprising, but I am praying that you find it helpful. But this series is not just for Christians who are dating or thinking of dating. I have a much wider audience in mind than just that. I'm hoping you'll find this series helpful if you're not currently a follower of the Lord Jesus, if you're not a Christian. I'm hoping that it will give you an insight into the Christian worldview on a topic that many of us have spent quite a lot of time thinking about. I don't expect that you'll agree with everything, but if Christianity is true, and if Jesus really is Lord, then the Christian viewpoint on any topic, including dating, should commend itself in some way as making sense, if it really is true. Even if its presuppositions are quite different to your normal starting point. I hope, therefore, that this series actually gives you a little bit of a window into the Christian worldview and that what you find there is not just curious, not just sort of interesting, but it's actually refreshing for you, that it actually resonates with your experience in some sort of way and that it commends to you the truth about Jesus and His way of living as a human being in God's world. I'm also hoping that this series is going to be useful to you if you are a Christian who has no intention of dating. You might be a Christian who's decided for whatever reason you have no intention of dating anyone, either now or in the future, and so you might think, therefore, this topic is pretty irrelevant for you. Well, that's not true, actually, for two reasons. First of all, because Christian holiness is a community concern, not just an individual responsibility. Or in short, holiness is about us, not just me. We know that God calls Christians to holy living. Holiness is the consistent expectation of the one true living God for His people. It's there in the Old Testament when the one true living God rescues His old covenant people, the nation of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. And He then says to them, and you can look it up later in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, He says this, He says, You are to be holy to Me because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. See there, the chief idea of what holiness actually means. It means being set apart for a special purpose. The one true living God is set apart from everything else that He has made. He alone is God. He's the creator, not a creation, not a creature like us. And the people of the one true living God are to be set apart from everyone else by the way they live. 
That idea is then carried through into the New Testament and applied to those who follow Jesus as Lord. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Peter writes this, But just as the God who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Think about that for a minute. That means that Christians should expect to date differently to the rest of their culture. Because sadly, the rest of the culture does not recognise Jesus as Lord. Christians are to be holy, to be set apart in all they do. So when it comes to dating, Christians ought not just go with the flow of the culture around us. Christians live now as God's people in His world. We listen to His Word in the Bible not the world. We follow His ways, not even our own ways. That's what it means to be holy, to be God's holy people, to be set apart by Him, for Him. Now, as Christians, we're used to being told that each of us is responsible to God to live out that holiness, to be His holy people. But holiness is a community concern, not just an individual responsibility. It's about us, not just me. I'm to care for your holiness and you're to care for mine. That's part of what love looks like. Not in the way that's all sort of judgy and condemning, but in a way that encourages one another, that challenges one another with humility, knowing that I too often fail, that rebukes one another but with gentleness, because that's how God, our loving and compassionate Heavenly Father, is towards us. Holiness is a community concern for Christian people. It's about us, not just me. Those verses in 1 Peter and other places in the New Testament are addressed not to individual Christians, but to Christian communities. They're addressed corporately, be holy together. We're so used to individualising everything that we lose the community focus that's actually there in the Bible text. That's why there's so many instructions in the New Testament that are addressed to one another. Encourage one another. Teach one another. Gently correct one another. Holiness is about us. It's not just about you. It's not just about me. It's a community concern, not just an individual responsibility. So if you've already decided that for whatever reason dating is not for you, this series is still definitely for you because you want to know how to encourage holiness amongst your Christian sisters and brothers who are dating. There's a second reason that I'm hopeful that this series will be helpful for you, even if you've decided you won't be dating. That's the framework for Christian ethics that we'll be using. Working out a Christian approach to dating is not easy. It's not mentioned in the Bible. There are no guidelines that you can just proof text from the Christian scriptures And so the range of approaches Christians have therefore adopted to dating is very wide if you go and read what people have written. There's from one extreme the sort of basically dating is bad, kiss it goodbye view, (laughs) through to dating is like a mini marriage just without sex and the ring. So the lack of direct instruction in the Bible about dating I think is actually really helpful for us because it forces us to develop a more thoughtful Christian framework for what wise Christian living actually looks like. We have to develop a Christian ethical 
framework to work out what the good is in this area and how to live it. And the Christian ethical framework that I'm going to start to outline today applies much more broadly than just to dating. It's an ethical framework that you can apply to all sorts of life questions. Dating is just the example that we'll apply this ethical framework to in detail. It's a sustained, worked example over the three weeks, if you like, showing us how to think through a real-life situation using the Bible, even when the Bible doesn't directly address the issue. And frankly, there's lots of issues you're going to face in life that the Bible doesn't directly address, from, you know, recycling through to energy policy, to indigenous reconciliation, to industrial relations reform. Like, developing a Christian ethical framework is really important as a follower of Jesus because you want to work out how to honour Jesus in all the complex situations that life presents. So let's get started then with the Christian ethical framework. It starts with a very simple truth. Now, I'm going to draw it up on the board and I know my drawings are lame but I think the truths I'm trying to capture are really good. So forgive my drawing, but go with it. Anyway, what's the starting point? This, this Christian ethical framework that we're drawing from the Christian Bible starts with Jesus at the centre of absolutely everything. Here's Jesus' death and his resurrection... Is Jesus. Okay. Jesus is at the centre of absolutely everything. How can I show you that from the Christian Scriptures? Well, if you've got a Bible there, you might like to turn up Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, let me just point out to a few verses here in Colossians chapter 1, or maybe call it up on your phone, look on with a friend next to you. Colossians chapter 1, start with verses 16 and 17. Notice what the Apostle Paul here says about God the Son who became the man Jesus amongst us. He says there, verse 16 of chapter 1, For in Him, the Son, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. Now, simple comprehension question, which even the engineers can do. What were any of... I was an engineer, I understand. What... what, Any repeated word there, repeated word or idea... I'll take any suggestion. All. All. Thank you. Notice the incredible, universal, comprehensive statement that this is about the centrality of Jesus. All things were created in Him, through Him, for Him. All things, we're told, hold together in Him. That means you, that's talking about you, you're part of all things, so am I. That means this university, that means the trees, the wombats, as my animal of choice this week, right? (laughs) The wombats, the asteroids, the amoebas, all 
things were created in, through and for Him, including our relationships. Even dating finds its proper place with reference to Jesus at the centre, because He's at the centre of absolutely everything. Dating is not a direct divine creation, unlike, say, adoption or marriage. Dating is a cultural human construct. But as part of a mediated creation, through us as God's image bearers, dating still finds its primary reference point with respect to Jesus, because he's at the centre of everything that is. And yet we know all things are compromised and marred at a deep level, right? Our relationships, the environment we inhabit, our society. I don't need to prove to you that everything is in some way broken and marred, because you know that. The Bible tells us that that broken experience is because of our rejection of the one true living God's word and his ways. It's what the Bible identifies as sin. But look at then, if you've still got the passage open there, look at what Paul then goes on to say in verse 20. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So all things, including dating, find their ultimate redemption in Jesus and the change he initiated through his death and resurrection. In Jesus, there is forgiveness and reconciliation for all the wrongs that we have perpetrated, including all the wrongs that you and I have perpetrated against those we've been dating. There is forgiveness and reconciliation for all of those wrongs that we have perpetrated. But in Jesus, there is also ultimate comfort and healing for all the wrongs that we've endured from those we've dated. Ultimate comfort and healing is actually only ever found in Jesus and the hope he gives. But even more, in Jesus, there is the redemption of dating. What do I mean by that? I mean that in the light of who Jesus is and the change that he brings in your life when you put your trust in him, It is possible to date now in a way that brings honour and glory to Jesus. But it does mean sifting out the false wisdom of the world that has twisted our thinking on what good dating looks like and it means embracing the wisdom that is then found in Jesus, his word and his way. Well, how does that then play out in dating? Well, if you've got the Colossians still open there, flick to chapter 3, verse 17. You can see Paul then applies this. How do you live out the centrality of Jesus to absolutely everything? Here he says in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, And whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So if Jesus really is at the centre of all things, then it's right to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything in word and deed in a way that accords with who he is, in a way that reflects his word and his way, including dating. Actually, including the decision about whether to date or not. 
Jesus has to be at the centre of everything, including whether you even decide to date. I'll show you a place where you can see this reflected, I think. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which was a passage we had read for us a little while ago by Owen, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is not talking about dating, because dating is not mentioned in the Bible, but he's talking about marriage, but you can see a little bit of what I'm talking about here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but jump in later in the chapter to verse 32. Paul spent the earlier part of the chapter encouraging Christian wives and Christian husbands to care for each other. That's part of what being a follower of Jesus looks like if you happen to be married. You've got to care for your spouse. Your commitment to Jesus drives you to give yourself in service to the other person. But Paul thinks, given the choice, that you can do more for Jesus if you're single. Let's have a listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly towards the woman he is engaged to, and if she is getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the woman, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the woman does right, but he who does not marry does even better. You can see there, Paul thinks, given the choice, you can do more for Jesus if you're single. And the decision to pursue marriage or not is ultimately about Jesus. Commitment to Jesus is front and centre for everyone, whether single or married. If you want to just be free of other concerns and do use that freedom for Jesus then choose not to get married. But if you do choose to get married, it's not that you're less devoted to Jesus. It's that your devotion to Jesus is now going to take a particular shape. You're voluntarily giving up some of the freedoms you would have as an unmarried person to serve Jesus in order to serve this person who you're making marriage to. But Jesus is at the front of both those decisions. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus is at the front of both those decisions. If you do commit to marry somebody, then yes, you are choosing to limit your freedom. You can't just do whatever you want for Jesus anymore. If you want to say, I want to stay single so I can do more for Jesus, but then you have sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend, Paul here would be very clear in his advice. You should just get married. Because your holiness matters more to God than your marital status. Your holiness matters more to God than your marital status. You can't just do whatever you want once you get married. You have an obligation before the Lord Jesus to seek the welfare of your spouse. That's Jesus' will for you. I've just observed over the years that there are sadly a heck of a lot of ways you can wreck a marriage. And one that I find particularly troubling is those who 
live like a single person where they do whatever they want to do in the name of gospel ministry and of serving the Lord Jesus whilst they're actually married. You claim to be out serving Jesus, but you're actually neglecting the one He has particularly given you to serve. If you want to use the freedom that you have to serve Jesus like that, then do yourself and whoever you may date and marry a favour. Don't get married. Paul, in this passage, expresses his wish that more and more Christians would actually take up that option. But he says, ultimately, you're free. In either case, it's about putting Jesus at the centre, at the centre of your holiness, at the centre of your relationships, at the centre of your decision to date or not to date. And taking Jesus seriously there and putting him at the centre, that makes a massive difference to how you date somebody. It's both a liberating, it's a liberating thing, but also presents an opportunity. I'll explain what I mean. The freedom to choose to not get married and therefore to not date, that is genuinely liberating. The world tells us that intimate sexual relationships are everything. That continued sexual gratification and experience is fundamental to a satisfying life. But the truth is, that's a lie. Sex is a great gift of God. He could have made procreation as boring as long division. He could have made it like ironing. If you want to have a kid, you've got to iron a shirt. (laughs) We have a kid. If he wanted to, he could have made it as boring as ironing or long division. But he didn't. He made it as interesting as sex. So sex is a great gift of God and it has an important function within lifelong commitment of marriage, which we'll talk about next week. But it is not fundamental to who you are. As a human being made in the image of God or as a Christian adopted as a child of a loving Heavenly Father amid sisters and brothers in Christ. The Gospel announcement that Jesus is at the centre of everything actually liberates us from making an idol out of sex, or of dating, or of marriage. The gospel that Jesus is Lord frees us to live as a single person in secure devotion to Jesus amidst a family of sisters and brothers in Christ. And there lies our opportunity as well. There's an opportunity here for the Christian community to be different to the world in the way we esteem being single. We don't pretend that it's more holy or that it's more devoted to Jesus than being married, it's not. But we know that marriage is only temporary. The single life is our eschatological destiny in Jesus. Jesus tells us that there is no marriage in the Kingdom of Heaven. So we'll all be single when Jesus returns. And because we know that, we make sure that the quality of relationships in the Christian community is such that the single life is relationally full. It's part of what love looks like in the Christian community, that you can live a a satisfying, fully relational life as a single person in the Christian community. How does putting Jesus at the centre make a difference to dating? Well, here's another way. It means that my goal in dating is your holiness, not my gratification. 
So often in dating, it's all about me. It's actually about my satisfaction, my pleasure. But putting Jesus at the centre of dating means that my goal is now your holiness. It's not about me, it's about you. Your walk with Jesus, your holiness. So that's thinking a little bit about putting Jesus at the centre. That's part one of our ethical framework. What's the next part of our ethical framework? Well, as I said to you before, I can't turn to a particular passage in the Bible and say, look, here is the two paragraphs that outline the Christian ethical framework. God didn't write those chapters for us. But what he did do is gave us a whole Bible where there is just oodles, technical term, oodles of ethical reflection. So if you go through and read through the Bible and look at all the moments where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Bible writers do ethical reflection and ethical reasoning, you can start to draw together some of the fundamental truths that they are drawing upon. And that's what I'm trying to present to you here. We start with Jesus being at the absolute centre of everything. But then there's other things that the Bible writers add as well. In particular, here's two key words. Nature and purpose. When you look at how, in God's Word, ethical reflection is carried out, often reference is made to both nature and purpose. What I mean by nature is thinking about what is the actual nature, the, the, the nature of this particular thing that we're trying to investigate. If you're trying to investigate social policy or the workings of government, well, the Bible helps you understand a bit about the nature of human government. Helps you understand a bit about that. If you want to understand fruit, the Bible can help you understand the nature of fruit. You can turn to the early chapters of Genesis, it will tell you that the, the part of the nature of fruit is that it grows as part of God's good creation to give you sustenance, food. But nature under the sovereignty of God, fits with the purpose that God has given. So, for example, with food, if you look in the early chapters of Genesis, we're told that God makes the fruit on the trees attractive to the eye, appealing to the eye. Why would he do that? He could have made food look like mud. And you teach your little kids, look, I know it looks gross, but you have to eat it. But no, he made food look attractive to the human eye. Why? So you might want to take it and eat it. Nature and purpose fit together. So what we're going to do is we have to think, in trying to think about dating, what is the nature of dating? What is its reality? And what is its purpose held together with Jesus at the centre? That's the challenge. Does that make sense? So let me try to explain a little bit to you. I've said to you that in the Bible, it doesn't talk about dating. That's true. It does talk, though, about many human relationships. In particular, it talks about being siblings in Christ. Brothers and sisters, when you become a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus, you're adopted into God's family, we're sisters and brothers in Christ. How do sisters and brothers in Christ, how are they meant to relate? In absolute purity, we're told. 
brothers and sisters in Christ who relate in absolute purity. So the way you could talk about it is we are celibate. There are no sexual relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what's fitting for God's holy people. So you can be celibate siblings in Christ, living in absolute purity. You can look that up in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, in advice to Timothy, treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, and younger sisters, sorry, younger women as sisters, and then he says, in absolute purity. Between brothers and sisters in Christ, between all of us in Christ, we're to live in absolute purity with one another. No sexual relationships. That's very clear in the Bible. But that's not the only relationship that's there in the Bible. There's also, in the Bible, the picture of fully sexual married husband and wife. And we heard one of the passages that are about this relationship and the Bible reading at the beginning of today. So from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, particularly, say, verses 3 to 5. And you can see, if you've still got it there, or you can flick it open, what Paul said there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. He said, The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to the husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here is a picture of husband and wife giving themselves voluntarily to one another in fully sexual marriage. So you see, these are very different, aren't they? So the question is, that's posed is, as a Christian, how might you move from here to here? I asked my 13-year-old son how to do it. <laughs> here is his advice. I, will, <laughs> I wrote it down, it was so good. He said, as his preface was, I'm in year seven at a co-ed high school I pretty much know everything about dating. <laughs> so, take notes now. He says, buy licorice first. It's a pretty sophisticated model. <laughs> buy licorice first because everyone likes whoever has licorice. <laughs> if you didn't know that, that's really useful information. You then buy flowers and a Pepsi from the canteen but it has to be Pepsi Max. I'm not quite sure why. I never got, I was so shocked by the whole episode that I didn't ask him why it, was, it has to be Pepsi Max. It has to be Pepsi Max. Then you talk for at least five minutes. If you talk for more than five minutes, you are definitely dating. And if you look them in the eyes, you're practically married. So there you go. That's how you go. <laughs> Stop looking at each other in the eye. Uh, you go from, that's how you, is that how you do it? The Bible doesn't say how you move as a Christian from one to the other. You could have an arranged marriage. 
Now, that might fill you with fear or fill you with relief. Church I go to, uh, I have a number of Indian couples, and there's a lovely young Indian couple there who I got to know over the years, uh, and they emigrated to Australia as, uh, soon after they were married, and they had an arranged marriage back in India. Their families organised it for them. This, this still happens for millions and millions of people. It's the way, as Christians, they move from one to the other, is the parents work it out. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Shock, horror. Or <laughs> what have we done? You might, in a moment, you might think, actually, let's go back to the arranged marriages. But what have we done? Well, let me describe to you how I think it rolls out in our Christian culture. It, we create a bit of a bridge between the two, and it sort of has a couple of stages. First of all, there's what you might call the connecting stage. Not the EU connecting system, just to be <laughs> clear. This is nothing to do with that. Or maybe you might call this heightened awareness or noticing. It's the thing where, you know, you've got lots of brothers and sisters in Christ who you're committed to and love and want to see them go well in the Lord, but then there's that person who, when they walk in the room, you really sort of notice where they're sitting and you notice what they're doing. And if I said to you, what's the person next to you wearing? You say, I don't know. What are they wearing? You know. Like, <laughs> there's just that noticing thing. Does that... And you might... And then you might chat to them and you might chat to them and then you go, as soon as they open their mouth, you go, actually, I'm not noticing anything anymore. <laughs> and you're just... You're just Loving them as a... That's okay. That's all right, right? That's just this... You sort of wander out, you wander back, you wander out, you wander back. That's just, that's just noticing, right? Just, but then you might talk with one person and then you get to start to get to know... And then you end up in a relationship, as Facebook would tell you, right? What we're calling dating. You end up in a relationship. You're a thing together. Some sort of public thing, Right? Now, the interesting thing about dating is, remember, this is what the thing that we're really talking about. I'm trying to understand the nature of dating in a Christian framework. The nature of dating, fundamental to this, is that it's temporary. In a Christian framework, dating is not forever. It always ends. It either ends by you going, you know what? We're not, we're not going to be a thing anymore. Let's go back to being celibate siblings in Christ. And that's okay. That's all right. That's dating. That's one of the things... You know, this is why you're going to say, you know, frankly, I don't, like, I don't like this, that we have to do it like this, but that's just how we've chosen to do it. Or you might decide, actually, I'm ready to make those promises of Christian marriage to this person, in which case you end up engaged which really is like promising to make the promise. It's not being married, it's promising to make that promise. But it is a very clear public step forward beyond dating. So I'm trying to understand the nature of dating and I guess two quick reflections as we come to the end and we'll talk more about this over the coming weeks. One is dating has a purpose in a Christian framework. The purpose of dating as we have constructed it is to work out whether or not you are willing to make the promises or the promise of making the promise to get married to this person. That is the defining task of dating. It's not 
the primary task, I mean, careful about this, it's the defining task, work out whether you can make the promise or not. It's not the primary task. What's the primary task of dating? It's to keep Jesus at the centre. The primary task is your holiness, their holiness. That's the primary task. But the defining task of dating is, am I willing to make those promises of marriage to this person? And because that is its purpose, it is... That is why dating is temporary, because you have to make a decision. Am I will and if you're dating someone and you've lost sight of the purpose of dating, if you're just sort of in this dating relationship that just rolls year to year to year and doesn't seem to progress forward or back, I would suggest in a Christian framework you've lost sight of the purpose of dating. It's not just to have a special friend. It's to work out whether you could marry this person or not. Now, that doesn't mean that the first time you go on a date, you have to go, well, here's my checklist, and I'm trying to work it out. And so, No, like, it takes a while to get to know somebody, a while to work out whether you're willing to make those sort of promises, right? But that is its purpose. That is its purpose. And that is why dating is necessarily temporary, because you make the decision or not. Now, the fact that it's temporary, that will have all sorts of implications that we'll look at next week. But another implication of its purpose is that when you decide, actually, I would not marry this person, or if you decide, I've decided not to get married at all, then you wouldn't date. Don't date somebody, in a Christian framework, who you know you would not marry. I hope that's whetted your appetite a little for where we might go over the next couple of weeks. So we try to then build on this framework. We've got a minute left. One minute. Give me the best question you got. Or a question. Um, yeah, okay. Um, just looking at 1 Corinthians 7, at uh, what point does the pursuit of singleness become an idol? Yeah. Seven. Um, if you misunderstand 1 Corinthians 7. Um, if you sort of think that singleness is somehow closer to godliness than marriage, then maybe you would pursue it as... No, Paul, Paul just says, look, if you've got more freedom, like me, he says, as a single person, you've got more freedom, I think that's better, but if you want to get married, that's fine. There's no sin, right? You're free. So I think if you start saying, no, I have to be single, then maybe you've turned that into a bit of an idol, and I think you're being more strict on yourself than Jesus is being on you. One more? Yeah, sure. Um, often we hear, like in the Bible, sexual immorality means sort of any sexual behaviour outside of marriage. How do we know that the New Testament writers meant that? Okay, we're going to talk a lot about the place of sex within marriage and how that impacts upon thinking about the nature and purpose of dating and dating relationships. We're going to think more about that in particular next week, so I might hold that till next week. Do you want to just wrap up for us? Yeah. I'll be hanging around for a bit if you want to ask, come and ask me some questions. Cool. Uh, friends, I'm going to pray and then we'll get up to asking questions. Father God, we give you great thanks that uh, Jesus, you took over all things, through him, all things are made, and that he is the centre of dating and the basis of gift of marriage. And Father, we just ask that you help us to serve you in all things, whether that be our academic careers or our relationships uh, with each other and
invite you to come back next week um, for our second week on the Yankee Stadium. Uh, please join us after.